You're listening to Art Affairs, episode 69. Today I'll be talking to Matthew Grabowski. And we're back. And I apologize for the break. It's been a, a little bit longer than normal. Uh, I had a couple of issues with scheduling uh, twice in a row, actually, and and that kind of uh, derailed my my planning a bit. But we're back and should be on track. Uh, knock on wood <laughs> from here on out. Uh, so my name is Michael Faith, and this is Art Affairs. Art Affairs is my attempt at shining a spotlight on the many wonderful people that make up this amazing art community featuring conversations with artists, gallerists, curators, telling their stories. You can dig through previous episodes, complete with show notes, at artaffairspodcast.com. But the best way to stay plugged in is to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And if you're really enjoying the show and want to help support what I'm doing here in an even bigger way, check out the Art Affairs Patreon. Not only does it give you an opportunity to help keep the show going, but there are several community-oriented benefits as well like getting early access to episodes and suggesting questions for upcoming guests. You can find all the information about that at patreon.com slash artaffairs. You can also connect with the show on Instagram at artaffairspodcast. All right, so today's guest is artist Matthew Grabowski. Matthew is known for creating portraits of people, mostly in the subway, with animal heads. But it didn't all start there. And in fact, it didn't start with art at all. He was originally aiming to be an astrophysicist. We talk about this drastic change in direction that he took on the show, as well as what significance the animal heads have to him, his new solo show at ThinkSpace, and a whole lot more. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Matthew Grabelski. Matthew, welcome to the show, man. It's really good to have you on. Thank you. It's great to be here. All right. And, and shout out to, to former guest Ken Fluellen, who recommended that I reach out to you. I, you know, and that was a while ago, so I, I know it took us a while to line this up. But, um, you know, shout out to Ken for the recommendation. Oh, well, Ken is my best friend. So uh, thank you, Ken, for following through <laughs> on our friendship. <laughs> Thanks for being a good friend, Ken. Um, all right. So diving into your background a little bit, I know that you grew up in New York City, but I think I read that you were born in L.A. So, uh, I mean, I don't read much about your time in L.A. as a kid, so it must have been pretty young. What was that trajectory like? What, what brought your family to New York and, and how old were you? Yeah, I was born in L.A. My parents actually went to um, school at CalArts. So that that brought them out there because they're New Yorkers. And we lived there until I was six. And then my dad got a job in New York, actually at the company that made Dirty Dancing. So that was that brought us out there. Um, and it was interesting because I feel like I was very, very impressioned by that first six years in L.A., at least with the environment that I still I mean, we only lived there for six years, but I still that like the openness and the palm trees and the weather and the, the blue sky still feels very homey to me. Interesting. So once you moved to, to New York, were you in like the heart of the city? Were you in one of the outer bureaus? Like where were you? Uh, when you were growing up? We were in Manhattan, actually. Yeah. It was actually a funny story because my grandfather was a dentist and my dad came out here first to try to find an apartment and he was having a really hard time finding a place. And so he called my, his father 
because my grandfather had a patient who actually owned the building that my mom still lives in and asked him if he could help his son find an apartment. And he said, uh, <laughs> he, ba- he basically, he just like ignored him, didn't, didn't take his call. And then this guy called back a couple of days later with a really bad toothache. And my grandfather <laughs> said, I'm not seeing you until you find my son an apartment. So wow. like 10 minutes later, he called back with an apartment. <laughs> nice. That's awesome. That's, uh, that's an amazing story. And, and so, I mean, your, your, your family in general, um, I mean, I guess maybe other than your, your dentist grandfather, but you have a lot of creative people in your family. Uh, you know, I know that your, your father worked as like a TV producer, um, I think even for HBO at one point, and your mother was a dancer and like your grandmother was a painter. So like you must have like grown up in a, in a pretty creative household um, as a kid. I did. Yeah, it was very creative. My parents were always doing arts projects with me. And I, I grew up going to movie sets when my dad was working on movies and I was around my mom. And we had always had my grandmother's paintings in our apartment or going to her house and seeing her paint. So yeah, that was very impressionable. So I, I feel like I I eventually basically just went into the family business. <laughs> well, I mean, what was it like uh, with your father being like a producer? Were you close to like TV sets and stuff? Like, did you spend a lot of time with like famous people? <laughs> Not that much famous people, a few times, but my dad was based at, he was at HBO, but in New York. And so all the filming that he did when he would go to sets, that was mostly in LA or overseas. And so there was, we'd always go back and visit LA. So there were some times where we'd go and there, there would be something that was filming and I got to go to a movie set. And that was always really fun. I remember one, it was this, this, uh, it was kind of this like sci-fi spoof, ridiculous movie. It wasn't great, but it was the sets were just amazing. It was like Dr. Seuss version of sci-fi. And I remember going, I think I was 13 or something with a friend and just climbing on these sets it was super fun. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, other than like the creative pursuits that your family had, were you exposed to just visual arts in general, like museums and stuff? Did your family embrace that or ex- expose you to that much when you were a kid? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we'd go to the Met a lot when I was a kid. We lived about it was like a 15 minute walk from our apartment to get there in New York. So I, I always grew up looking at those paintings and, um, and I think the other thing that was all, that was actually very, uh, impressionable on me was the natural history museum and the dioramas with the animals. Um, I kind of, those looking at those as adults, they're almost, they're set up as paintings they are almost composed. They're three-dimensional, but they're composed as a painting from the front. Um, and those had a big impression on me and also on my art now. And so that that explains one of the things I was going to ask you about, because I read that your first time showing your art was in sixth grade, um, that your your art teacher had organized uh, a showing at a, at a bank in New York City. And what you chose to create was a sculpted animal, like a three dimensional animal. So that, like your experience with what you just said about the Natural History Museum and the physical um, presence of the animals uh, as like three dimensional, I think that that tells me that maybe it may have inspired what you created in that class. But um, I guess, tell me about that. Was, was your main interest at that point sculpting and three-dimensional art or were you also painting and drawing back then? No, I, I started off pretty much only doing 3D stuff and sculpting. I mean, I, I always loved that from the time I was a kid, like working with different materials. It was always all different kinds of things. So it would be clay or gluing pieces of wood and other objects together and painting them. Painting came a lot later. That wasn't until basically the end of high school, kind of beginning of college that I really got interested in painting. Um, sculpture for me always felt very natural. I never really had any, I was never taught how to do it. I just always was messing around with different materials. 
And, and I guess, did you ever imagine at that point that art could be a career? Like were, were you, when people asked you, what do you want to be when you grow up? Was artist one of those things or, or was it just something you did for fun as, as sort of a hobby? Yeah, it was just fun. It's funny because I thought about that more recently, why I didn't think about being an artist as a career, because looking back now was always my favorite thing. And I feel like that should have just been the obvious answer that I would have been an artist. And I don't I don't know why I didn't think that. I, I think maybe I just never even thought about a career, so it didn't come up. Um, yeah, that that's a, a weird thing for me, because when I was in college, I studied science. And so I thought that I would be a scientist and and I, I enjoyed that. But looking back, I always loved art. That was my favorite thing to do. And, and you mentioned, uh, you know, your studies in science and, and you went to school at Rice in Houston, which is, you know, three ish hours drive from where I live. What what brought you to Rice? Like what attracted you to that university? Um, I was looking for a few different things when I was going to college. Number one was I wanted to go somewhere warm. I was tired of the New York winters. <laughs> that was the top of my list. So I, I looked at places in Texas, California. I think I applied to one school in Florida. I just did not want to be in New York winter again. Um, and then I'd also gotten really interested in, in uh, astronomy when I was in high school, kind of the end of high school through a, one of my uncles who was an astrophysicist. Um, and so at the time, that's what I thought I wanted to study and what I wanted to do. And so I was looking for schools somewhere warm that had a good astronomy department and Rice had a really good, good astrophysics department. And it had this, these historic links to NASA because mm -hmm. it was right there. Actually, JFK's famous I, um, speech about we're going to the moon and we're not going because it's easy. We're going because it's hard. That was at the Rice uh, football stadium. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Um, I, and, and so like going into an astrophysics uh, you know, program, what did you imagine that you would do with that degree once you graduated? I mean, I feel like that's one of those careers where you almost have to go all the way to PhD in order to do something like career-wise. What, what were you hoping to do with that degree? No, that's totally the career track I was thinking. I mean, I, I got into a bunch of uh, PhD grad programs at the end of college, and I was going to go right after college and get my PhD. And then I was thinking I'll get a job as a professor somewhere um, and live that kind of scientist academic life. That was really what I was focused on. Um, and I kind of towards the end of college, I was starting to question that because I was very burned out and I wasn't, I wasn't sure that I didn't want to do it, but I just wasn't as completely convinced that, that the way I was most of my time in college. And that's when I started thinking about other possibilities. And when I basically went in the art direction, um, I initially, I got into grad school, I deferred for a year to go study painting. And then I was at this school in Italy. And after, I think it was a month and a half, I was completely in love with the Italian life and painting every day and decided to make the switch. But I mean, you, you, you must have discovered it even sooner because you double major, didn't you double major in art and art history as like an undergrad? Yeah, I did. I mean, at the time, though, I just did that because it was something that was fun. I mean, mm. I, I always did art. And then when I was in high school, I got really interested in science and pretty much for those four years stopped doing any art. And then towards the end of high school, I, I started getting interested in learning how to draw, which I didn't know how to do well at all. Um, and then when I got to college, the way that our the program was structured, they were divided into everything was divided into three disciplines. So there were sciences. Um, I think it was like social sciences. So history, um, economics, and then 
um, arts and I guess it was arts and literature, something like that. And so you had to take four classes in the other two di- other two areas that weren't your major. So I was majoring in in physics and, and astrophysics, and then um, I used that to take some art classes. And it was the way that the program was structured. The art major was actually a lot less demanding time wise than the <laughs> physics. Like I think the the physics was was like a hundred and I think it was like 140 credit hours and I ended up taking like 160 because I took some extra classes. And then the art major was, I think it was like 30 hours. It was, it was basically eight art studio art classes and then, and then two art history classes. Like it didn't take that many more classes to get the degree. And I was having so much fun. I just did it. So that, that, that shift or not, not even shift, but taking on the art uh, double major didn't really represent a change in focus for you so much as well it's here and i can do it with you know a little bit less effort um it wasn't until after you got through that program that you started thinking about changing course yeah it was the very end of it was the very end of that i really just did it for fun i mean it was i I remember reading before i went to actually before i went to college i was starting to do some more art that summer and i saw they had all these art classes so that's what gave me the idea and then, yeah, I just it, I just enjoyed it. It was fun and it really kind of got me back into doing art that I had stopped when I was in high school. And you, man, you managed to do both of your degrees with honors. So uh, you must have, in, in a reasonable amount of time, so you must have been a pretty like incredible student. <laughs> pretty like studious. <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I definitely worked really hard. I feel like that was the biggest benefit to me of my college experience was it really taught me how to work and how to learn and manage my time. And I mean, all of that has been super useful in my art career, just when you, when you always have these deadlines. Um, but yeah, I, I I loved it. I really loved the challenge of it, and I liked being pushed. And, and like you said, after you got your bachelor's degree, you got both of them in in two thousand two. You had originally planned to continue that, take a year off, and then you know go back go back into astrophysics as a a, a graduate program. Um, but you took a year off so that you could explore and study painting abroad. And I believe you went to Italy at that point. I, I guess why did what motivated that decision to go to Italy and did that kind of represent to you a potential change in course or were you genuinely in your heart of hearts thinking, oh, I'm just going to take a year off and then I'll get back into the science thing? Or were you starting to think, hey, maybe science isn't for me? Like what motivated that decision to go abroad? Yeah, it's a combination. I mean, I was starting to question if I wanted to continue with science. I mean, I wasn't sure it was outside science. I was thinking maybe I want to do engineering or maybe I, it was just something different. I just wasn't as convinced. And I'd gotten into grad school and um, I was, I really liked the UCLA program. So I was, I went there to visit and um, I asked them when I was there, I said, I love your program, but I'm, you know, I would really like to take a year off. Is that would you let me do that? And they said, well, nobody's ever asked that, but sure. (laughs) Um, And at the same time, I had found this small painting school in Florence that was, it was basic, it was this very small school. I think when I went, there were maybe 20 students and they, they, the way that they taught was based off of the way that the schools in in Paris in the late 1800s taught, Um, which is what I'd really been craving that because when I was in college, actually it was in my, the art history classes I took in college. That was when I really fell in love with classical European painting, like Renaissance up through about 1900. I, I just never looked at that stuff. 
Um, and I, I really fell in love with the way that those paintings could tell stories visually. Um, and I wanted to learn how to do those techniques and I had did not learn that in college at all. And that's, so that's what brought me to Italy. So the way that they taught that, uh, or just taught art in general in that course in Italy, uh, was, was very different from the type of, uh, I guess, teaching and the nature of the coursework that you did at Rice? Yeah, at Rice, it was kind of the more standard university type art program. So it's more focused on, on the ideas and concepts, conceptual art, than it is on learning technique. So most of the classes, they would give you a list of materials and they would set up some projects, but it was more kind of exploring with materials on your own and then you'd get together and talk about it. Um, and I had gotten really interested in these paintings I'd seen in museums. And so I was trying to do that kind of on my own and just failing miserably. Um, I had some friends who were self-taught and I just, you know, when I tried teaching myself at that point, I mean, it came out as a mess. Um, and so the school in Italy was very, it was very technical. We talked about art, but it was very technical and starting, here's how you hold a pencil. Here's how you sharpen your pencil. Um, and then it, working our way through copying drawings and then doing these, these very detailed charcoal drawings of sculptures and then the same and then still lives. And then the same time we were working from uh, nude models every day and very classical. And, and I guess as part of that um, curriculum, did they also give you, I guess, experience or an opportunity to show your work or kind of, I guess, prepare you for that kind of gallery um, artist experience and lifestyle? A little bit. Um, we did have at the school at the end of every year, we would do a student show and there were a few other art schools in, in Florence. So we'd go, they, those students would come see our work and then they would do their shows and we'd go see theirs. So there was a little bit of it. But I think at the time I kind of had this very like pie in the sky. Oh, I'm going to finish here and then I'm just going to paint what I want and everybody's going to buy it and it's going to be great. And I'm going <laughs> to, I don't think I understood just how difficult the path was. Sure. Uh, possibly it was good because I think if I had, I might, I don't know if I would have done it. Yeah. I mean, that's a critique. I mean, th- in general, I hear a lot about people um, and their experience in art school in the U.S. is that it doesn't really prepare you super well for the business side of being an artist and, you know, going into a gallery community. And so I was curious, like, if your experience in Italy, if they approached it in a completely different way so that it maybe did better prepare you for uh, the business side or, or just the challenges that you have as a gallery artist. It's, it sounds like it may have gotten it closer, but still not quite there. Yeah, it was closer, but not quite. Yeah, because at the end of college, that that period where I was questioning if I wanted to be a scientist, I asked one of my art professors, how do you make a living as an artist? Because I was thinking, maybe I want to be an artist. And her response was like, how could you even think about money? Art's not about money. And (laughs) I was like, yeah, well, you're a tenured professor, so you can afford to do it. Um, And then in Italy, the, the, the guy who founded the school had been, was mostly a portrait painter. Um, But then at this time, he'd he wasn't really doing that many portraits anymore. He was mostly teaching. And so he did have experience as a working artist, but it was a little bit, um, you know, it was kind of a different context and a, you know, a little bit outdated, I think for the way the gallery world was when I was starting. Um, yeah. And so most of what I ended up learning was really from friends. I'd meet other artists and hear what they did and I would try something and a lot of things didn't get me anywhere and a few things did. And I guess, you know, as you're in the school in Italy, you're obviously ch- completely changing direction as far as what your career path was going to be. Um, were your parents supportive of that decision? Did they, I mean, were they concerned at all about 
this very drastic move in in career direction? No, not at all. It was funny because um, I had of other I had other friends who were in the arts, and um, you know they wanted to be artists, and their parents were like, "What are you doing? You're going to throw your life away. I want you to be happy. You should get a job." And um, my dad worked in production, but he always did. Um, kind of drew and did some art on the side and my mom was an artist. And um, I, when I decided to be an artist, basically their response was, thank God, something practical. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's the, the opposite, uh, I guess, reaction that I, I normally uh, hear, you know, it's normally the questioning the practicality of being an artist. <laughs> yeah, no, completely. I mean, they, they, I remember them coming when I was in college, there was the day where the parents could visit and go to your classes with you. And I remember them, the sense that they were very impressed at what I was doing, but they just didn't understand it at all. And I think when I switched to art, which again is almost the family business, they, right. you know, it made a lot more sense to them. That's awesome. Um, so after graduate or after getting, uh, I think in 2006 is when you, you finished the, the, um, the program at Angel Academy in Florence. And I think uh, you moved to Paris at that point um, is if I got my timing correctly, I guess what led you to, to Paris from Italy? Yeah, actually, I went back to New York for a year before Paris. Um, but yeah, it was I met a girl. So that's what got ah. me out of Paris. <laughs> That'll do it. <laughs> yeah. How long were you there before you moved back to the States? Um, I was in Paris initially. I was there for two and a half years. And then I was kind of back and forth for another year and a half okay. before I came back here permanently. And did you dive right into working on your painting career right at, right out of school, or, or did you do other kinds of work um, as you were kind of developing your craft? No, I mean I dove right in. It was not the the subject matter that I'm painting now, but I left the school and I immediately started painting. Um, the first thing I did, I, it was interesting because I got the the school was very technical, and then I got back to New York, and there was this show of this uh, painter at the Met. Um, that uh, was from the 1800s, I think. And it was this really comprehensive show and it was, it had all of his studies and like the initial ske compositional sketches and then the individual studies he did of drapery and figures and, and then the finished paintings. And I just kind of realized that there was still a lot I didn't know how to do for the kind of paintings I wanted to do. So I spent the whole first year I was back in New York just doing this big mythological painting. I took a story from, one story from a Greek myth and then did a big, I think the painting was like five by seven feet or something. And it was just like, for me, it was, it was how to dive in to do something kind of the, the thing I wanted to do and knew I didn't know how to do. And it, it, it was something where I could really learn along the way. And I kept on running into things I just didn't know how to do. And every time I would work on it and eventually figure it out. Yeah, no, that's interesting. And, and I guess, um, during this time of this, this time of exploration and trying to just figure out what your artistic voice is, what was that work like back then? Was there, could you still kind of see a, a thread to what you make today? Like, is there a through line there or was it just completely different? Yeah, there was definitely a through line, but, um, I think that my work now combines a lot of things that I've been interested in since my childhood with animals and stories and, um, kind of these fantastical stories and mythology um, and psychology, the way that these, for me, for now, it's how these creatures represent psychology. Um, so I could, I could see that in the stuff I did then, like the first painting I did was this big Greek myth. And those, those stories have a lot of those elements of fantasy, but that they also are often allegorical. So they'll represent something like an idea. Um, 
And then after that, I, I experimented with a lot of different things like portraits and still lives. So those were not exactly what I'm doing, but I mean, it was still like, if it's a portrait, it's still a person. So there were elements mm-hmm. of it that ended up in my current work. Interesting. And, and, and I know you had your first, um, at least your, according to your CV, your first show outside of, of school was in Paris uh, in 2009 at the Grace Tashima. I'm probably pronouncing that incorrectly, but I guess, how did you first get in, uh, getting in front of um, galleries and start making some of those relationships? Yeah, I mean, that first show, that was through a, um, that one was actually through the woman that I rented the first apartment from in Paris. So I, <laughs> I, it was this little apartment and the the woman who was renting it to me was this American expat and she was an artist. And so we started talking and she was like, oh, I have this friend who does these salons at her, she has this big apartment in uh, um, Montmartre, which is the, where the Moulin Rouge is. And, um, and she's, and so she's like, Oh, I'll connect you with her. And so I did, it was basically, it was like this kind of old fashioned salon in her apartment where she would do every month. She would have some artist show in her apartment and invite over a big, big crowd. So was her name Grace Tashima? Was it yeah. named after her? Okay. <laughs> it was named after her. Yeah. <laughs> okay. yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. That, I, I just connected that. That's cool. Um, and, and I know you started showing just a year later in the U.S. Um, you know, and, and I think that you started showing with ThinkSpace, who you obviously have developed a really good relationship over the years. You started showing with them in 2012, and then you had your first solo show in 2016 with them. Uh, so how did you connect with Andrew and, and LC and start that relationship with ThinkSpace? That one was really random because I I had been thinking for, well, my whole life after moving to New York when I was a kid about going back to L.A. And so this was when I was living in Paris. I was kind of I was a little bit having a hard time with Paris uh, again, like I'm very weather sensitive. So it's a beautiful city, but very dreary. <laughs> and um, and so I was I was thinking about L.A. So I came out to L.A. for a month and a half just to check it out and see if it was a place that I really wanted to be or if it was just some fantasy memory from my childhood. <laughs> um, and the, I, the, when I was first there that week, it was the LA art show, which is the big LA art convention. So I went to that, I think it was the first weekend I got there and I just started talking to people and asking where the galleries were in LA. And somebody told me about, it was this, uh, this area in Culver city, which is where think space was until they, couple of years ago when they moved to this new location they're at now. Um, and they said, there's a lot of galleries there. So I just walked over and I walked into, I was going into the galleries and I walked into ThinkSpace. And I think at the time they had a group show. So they had a lot of different paintings up. And I was just kind of blown away that I was much more familiar with kind of the more abstract conceptual art scene in New York. And um, I hadn't seen a lot of stuff that was kind of representational, but also kind of interesting and weird. And I walked in and there were just all these paintings that I really loved. And so I walked to the back and I started talking. I, I went to the back and LC uh, was there, who's one of the, the ThinkSpace co-owner and just started talking to him. And I showed him I had some, I think, I don't even know if I had a smartphone. I don't think so. So I just had some printed out four by six photos that I, that I showed him and uh he really liked them. And I was shocked because my experience in New York was you go into a gallery and you try to talk to somebody, <laughs> they just ignore you. Right. And, uh, and so just the fact that somebody at a gallery that had this really cool stuff was, you know, would actually talk to me was amazing. Um, doesn't, doesn't yeah. LC do portfolio reviews, like, uh, like public portfolio review where he invites people to, to review their portfolios or at least he used to, I think. 
Yeah, he used to do it at the at ThinkSpace, and then he he took a break for a while, and now he's been doing it again at Art Bar, which is the nice the other is this art and bar gallery that he opened. But yeah, I mean he's a he's a really amazing person for for that because a lot of people will tell you what they think about your art, and he just has this great eye and no filter, so he will really tell you. <laughs> I mean, you got you have to be strong because he he might tell you that this is right. like why are you doing this? Don't do this. It's terrible. <laughs> But but when he tells you something, it's it's very insightful. And some of his critiques really did have affected my work in a nice. very, very positive way. Very cool. Um, and I guess is it, you know, having now shown with them several times and, and other galleries as well, is it important to you to have a strong gallery relationship like that? Um, like, like, you know, in retrospect, has that been an important component to your career? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was really ThinkSpace. I mean, it was really with Andrew that that really kind of launched my career. Um, I mean, I'd been showing here and there and I'd make some connection with the gallery and maybe show a couple paintings. I'd sell some paintings and do some commissions. So I was getting by, but it wasn't really building to anything. Like I didn't have a lot of people who knew me. It was more just, you know, here and there. And it was really with with ThinkSpace pushing my stuff that it really got it out there to a much wider audience. So, yeah, that was invaluable to me. Now, it's interesting just the, the, cause I know that, you know, several years ago, you would hear so much more about, wow, social media is changing everything. You know, artists can just sell directly to, to their patrons and, you know, people questioning the value of a gallery. And then now, you know, with algorithms and the distasteful nature of social media, like just that arc is interesting where right. <laughs> everybody was, you know, all about social media as a platform for, um, you know, artists connecting with their fans, which I'd still think it is, but it just feels so much grosser now. (laughs) Yeah. Just the the options for social media are just not great. And I think it just highlights the fact that galleries um, do have a place and and they still have a place, even with the emergence of social media and the ability to connect directly with people, you know? Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, social media is definitely still helpful and I think it's gotten tougher for artists with Instagram because that was the main platform and it was great when it was just images. And now that it's turned into videos, I think it's gotten to be a little more difficult. People are trying to figure out what to do. Um, but yeah, I think that with a gallery, that that personal connection is really helpful. And as much as this idea that, yeah, with the internet, you can connect to anybody anywhere in the world right away. Um, and that is definitely part of you know getting your work out there. That personal connection with a gallery, with collectors, with other artists, you know, being in an art city where you can really go and meet a lot of people in the art world, that really helps. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I think in a way that that's probably even gotten more so because, you know, with being able to see everything, it helps kind of focus you and Mm. curate and help find the really good things because there's so much to look at. How would you even know where to start? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's true. Um, so let's dive into to your work. And I know that you're, you know, as we talked about earlier, um, you know, your early work did include animals. There are elements of what you make today, um, but you didn't really have that um, animal head on a, a human body kind of motif that that you're using in your current work. So I guess how did that thematic first like enter into your your I guess repertoire? Yeah, the the first one that I did was actually when I was still living in Paris. And so I was, I had been really doing a lot of different kinds of paintings, but more my focus was technical. So trying to get my technical painting to a level that I was happy with, which I think that's a lifelong pursuit. Um, And, but, and so I was really, but then I really started thinking about subject matter and I was kind of struggling to find some subject matter that 
that could combine all the different things that I was interested in. And at the time, I was trying to find something that would combine them, but also make sense. And I just had this epiphany one day that it doesn't have to make sense. It can be, I can do whatever I want. <laughs> right. um, and and so I bit, I just started kind of doing some sketches and throwing some kind of more surrealist imagery together. Um, and then when I was back in, so that, that was, I think that was 2011. And then I was taking this trip back to New York for a family wedding. It was right after I had that thought. And so I already was kind of thinking about animals and New York and possibly the subway, um, something more that felt like the modern world because Paris, a lot of it was beautiful, but it didn't feel modern to me. And so I got back to New York and on this trip, I started just taking some photos and I was taking photos on the subway and I snapped this photo of this, it was actually an older couple um, sitting across from me. Um, and when I got back to Paris, I started looking at the photos and I, I saw that one and I just got this idea to add this bullhead to the guy, change his head to a bullhead. And then he had this coat that was very similar to the coat that I had at the time. So he kind of, that character felt like me. And then I replaced the face on the woman with the, the girl I was dating when I was living in Paris. And that was this first painting that I, it was the first thing that I did that really felt personal and I love doing it. And I thought it was just this really weird painting that nobody would have any interest in. And, <laughs> and then it, tur it turned out to, it was really that one. It was the first painting I did that really people connected to. So it was kind of amazing. And you had made that really kind of a personal reflection of your own feelings at the time. I mean, has that been the case for a while? I mean, I know you, you've done non-male characters as well, you know, in subsequent years. But in the early days of this kind of discovering this style, was that always a reflection of yourself? Was the, the person with the animal always you? I think there's always part of me in it. I mean, th that first one was this couple where the guy had this animal head. And then I, it was interesting because people really responded to it. And then, but I didn't really pick up on what was really interesting in that painting, I think. So I, then I ended up doing a bunch of different, also somewhat surrealist, but up, but paintings, but were more different. Like I was doing these modern fairy tale paintings and I, I really didn't, see that as like the set that this character's animal character is this like central to my work and then it was really actually andrew who pushed me into doing more of that where I, when i i i had moved after i was in paris so i moved to la and i was talking to andrew I, I showed him something and he was like well i'm not really interested in this but if you do more paintings like that one with the animal like let me know i'll take a look <laughs> and i was like okay i should probably do that so i did i think i did five smaller paintings and they were all a couple with an animal head, the guy with an animal head. And, and he really liked them. He picked three and put them, put them in a, in a group show they were doing. Um, and so that, that couple became this thing that I did for a while. And then eventually I got, I it was actually, I had, I had a show with ThinkSpace, but was, was in, uh, with Spoke, uh, in New York that they were doing together. And, um, I realized I kind of I, I was worried that people would look and think that I was saying that men are animals, which just it wasn't really my idea. The idea was just this character. Um, so I thought, oh, I should probably do one that's a woman with an animal head. I don't know if people will like it, but I, I want to do one. And so I did this one of my friend with a panda head and people love the painting and it sold. So that that one that gave me I was like, oh, well, now I can paint the women, too. And, and then and now it's I paint all of them with animal heads. What does the animal head kind of represent to you? Is it just a surrealist, this is a world where people have animals for heads? Or, or is, it, is there a deeper, I guess, narrative there? Um, are they reflections of these people's 
kind of inner selves or I guess you tell me what what does it mean to you um just in the context of those paintings yeah for me I think of it more as their inner self I I like with my work I never really want to tell people what to think because my goal is that they look at it and have their make up their own story because that's how I like looking at paintings but for me they represent something about what's going on in their mind or something about their character um and the idea is for me like the, these characters are something I always liked when I was a kid you'd see these you'd see fantastical characters in kid stories but the the human with the animal head is something that goes back to the beginning of time. I mean, you see yeah. Greek gods with a human with an animal animal head, or the Minotaur in Greek mythology, or Ganesh with an in, with a um, elephant head in India. For me, it's not the idea. Like, I'm not inventing this. This isn't like I invented putting an animal head on a person. But this is me plugging into this some kind of a common idea that people have always had. That's something kind of central to our psychology. Yeah. Did you study uh, mythology? Is that something that you just know a lot about in general through studying it? Yeah, really from reading on my own. I, I got interested in it when I was living in Italy because a lot of the classical European paintings, a lot of them are about Greek myths. So I started looking at the paintings and I loved the paintings. And then I went and I started reading, um, you know, Homer and the Odyssey and the Iliad and you know, a lot of these these Greek and Roman stories. And be, and beyond, I guess, the connection to mythology, um, do animals just in general um, serve as a source of inspiration for you? I mean, thinking about the cities that you've lived in, New York, not a ton of nature around. Like, you don't think of that as a very nature-rich part of the states. Paris, I don't know what the nature's like in Paris. Um, so I guess, what presence do just animals as uh, a source of influence, what have they had, what presence have they had in your life? Yeah, it's funny because the animal thing, I... I always had like when people would ask me, I used to talk about more than the mythology side of it, which is definitely something that inspires me. But I was I was uh, this was, I don't know, maybe five or six years ago. My mom was visiting me in L.A. for a few days and we were trying to think about activities. And so she suggested going to the, the Griffith Park Zoo, which is the it's a small but very nice zoo in L.A. Um, and she said we used to go there all the time when I was a kid. So we went and I loved it. And I realized that, oh, I probably just paint animals because my <laughs> parents took me here when I was a kid. It's just in my head from that. I mean, do you try to get out and see, um, you know, get out of the city and, and try to experience nature more firsthand? Yeah, I do. And I mean, I, I have always been fascinated by animals. So where I live now, I live right next to Elysian Park in Los Angeles. And there's tons of animals in there. I mean, I've seen raccoons and skunks and hawks and great blue herons and coyotes so when you go walking in there you see stuff all the time um and yeah so and i'm always reading about animals watching videos about animals um and then yeah i always love when i get out and see animals but you know in new york there are pigeons and rats so there are still animals all around <laughs> yeah no that's true and that's fair um i guess people just and and i thought this may just be a statement of our um, society don't tend to pay as much attention to them, um, you know, just because they are sort of ubiquitous. Uh, so, you know, diving into the other elements within your work, you know, in addition to, you know, kind of the main feature of the character who, uh, you know, may or may not have an animal for a head, you often will couple that with other kind of secondary references, either with, with the clothes that they're wearing or something that they're reading, like the, the recent uh, Black Panther print that you did with uh, him reading an issue of Black Panther. Um, so I, I guess how I guess how do these secondary references play into the story that you're telling with these characters? Well, yeah, with these characters, I really like 
that the idea that I'm telling a story that is not just a character, but there's something more that's going on, something that's going on in their head and that that relates to maybe they're reading a magazine and that's what they're thinking about. So they become an animal or they become this character. And I've always really liked humor and visual humor. And so that that is something that's really central to what I do, that I, I love the idea that I'm combining this very, you know, in a sense, very like classical, refined method of oil painting. But then at the same time, there's something that's just funny and strange and makes you laugh. And usually when I'm composing a painting, I'll have I'll usually like I'll have like an initial idea for painting like, oh, if it was somebody with this animal reading this or with this in the background or holding this object and I usually crack up. So it's like when I start laughing when it's in my head, like that's when I know it's an idea that I think is going to be fun to paint. <laughs> that's nice that that's your your threshold for what does or doesn't make, uh, you know, the next step. Um, I guess, what is the importance of the subway in your work? Obviously, that's been a central setting for, for most of the pieces. I know with your last show, um, you know, they, they started to explore other parts of, um, you know, areas outside of the subway. But I guess, why did you choose the subway as kind of this backdrop um, for, for most of the works that you make? I mean, in the beginning, it was just because that's where the first idea I got for this series happened. And it was this subway painting. And so then I really started exploring that. But I really love it because for me, the subway feels like it feels like the kind of the circulatory system of New York, where it's like it it moves all the people around. And New York is a very, very diverse mixed city, but still people go, you know, might work here or they live here or they have their areas or they're going to, you know, some show here. But the subway kind of everybody gets mixed together, no matter who you are, how rich or poor, where you work or what you do, everybody ends up there. So it's really this great kind of like the ultimate mixing place for New York. Good people watching, I imagine, too. Do you have any weird subway stories in your time in New York? Any crazy things that have happened to you on the subway? Yeah, plenty of them. But I, I think one that really stands <laughs> out was, and this guy, I think this guy is famous now, but I was on the subway one day and this guy walks on with this almost like Matrix-like like long trench coat and very serious expression on his face. And he has two rats, one on each shoulder. <laughs> and he's like pet rats and just like totally serious and then somebody kind of brought took out their camera people started taking out their cameras and then somebody asked him can i take your can i take a photo and and then he just like started smiling and he was the warmest guy and he started playing with the rats and posing for photos um yeah and it was just this like i, I love i feel like new york is just full of the most interesting characters and i think for my paintings i think if you're not from new york these seem like these crazy characters but if you spend any time <laughs> in new york they're just it's like ah, average it's new, new yorkers York. <laughs> yeah and, and so in your last show in, in in 2020 animals um you know we saw some of the pieces set in la uh you know outdoors in the in the light of day so i guess do you think that your characters will start migrating more and more out of the subway yeah definitely i mean my long-term idea like for me that the paint my paintings are about the character not the subway the subway is is where they started and I love this idea that they start in the subway and then where do they go? They get off the subway and then they're going somewhere. So that's kind of the next step of that I'm I've been thinking about um, for a long time. And I've done I've done some paintings that are not subway. And I did I did one in L.A. where it's uh, a family with with uh, marine animal heads walking on the beach in Santa Monica. So I have I have a bunch of other ideas. Um, and I was actually my plan was to branch out more earlier. But then when the pandemic started, mm. um I 
I mean, luckily I had the show in 2020. So luckily I had already, cause I, I take reference photos of the models that I use when I'm painting. Luckily I'd already had everybody pose in my studio before that. And then, uh, so I did this whole, that whole show and then the pandemic was still going on. And so I still couldn't have, have people pose for me. So I started going through, uh, um, photo shoots from the past and just, and found a whole bunch of other, like other poses that I hadn't used that then gave me another like 15, 20 ideas for new paintings. Um, and so I did a whole bunch of those compositions and those were all subway because in a sense, that's what I could still do. And so, and that's what I'm working on for this current show. And, and I was going to ask you about that, the, the choice to go out into the, into the park and into the light of day in 2020, was that in any way motivated by the pandemic? The fact that you had to be isolated, were you kind of living vicariously through your characters going out into the world? Yeah. I mean, it was such a weird time because I think as an artist, I was already so used to spending many, many hours alone in my studio working. (laughs) Um, And so it was strange because half the time I'd be working and I would have no idea that anything had changed. And then I would go out and realize, oh, things are very different. Um, So, yeah, I I don't actually know if that inspired. I mean, I'm sure it did. I can't exactly say how it inspired new ideas. I mean, do do these characters, I guess, in general have like backstories? Do do they? Does it help you to kind of develop a story for them in order to capture that moment? Yeah, sometimes I think about where they where they came from, where they're going. I mean, I, I always like to think of my paintings as kind of a snapshot in time and that they had a history and they're going somewhere. And this is just kind of capturing this one like perfect moment when you see them, you know, pose just so. Um, so, yeah, it, it really depends. Sometimes I think about it, but I think when I'm working, I focus more on kind of like the instant and what's going on and like capturing they're looking at something or reading something or, you know, they look up because something catches their attention. And so really focusing kind of like on the current. Do you feel that your your background in science has helped you in any way or, or inspired you in any way um, or the work, you know, informed the work that you make, I guess? Yeah, in a way, I've thought about that a lot. Like what kind of, was there a point to all the all the science I studied <laughs> other than it was super interesting and I loved it. But I, I do think that it taught me to be very methodical and analytical. And I mean, my work on the creative side, it's still, it's very, like I have a lot of fun just playing with ideas and really being open. But when it comes to executing my paintings, they're very technical and I have to work to, to get the level of detail that I get and the kind of refinement, like I have to work through a very kind of controlled technical process. Um, and a lot of that I figured out over time how to, how to do to get the look I want. And so I think that studying science, like learning how to be really analytical and ask questions and, you know, try to understand how things work, that really helped me in developing my, how I paint my method. And I could definitely see how being very methodical and, you know, structured and, uh, would benefit you, I guess, as part of the 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 painting process and the technical aspect of it. But the ideation stage, you, is that really controlled? I mean, I guess, how do you tend to arrive at your ideas for, for pieces? Do you have like a very kind of structured brainstorming activity or is it more just daily sketch routines and free-flowing ideas? No, I that's totally uncontrolled. I mean, I've never found that I could sit down and come up with an idea. I, it's always things that just come to me. And I usually find that it's these off moments. So waking up, going to sleep, sometimes taking a shower or when I'm at, when I'm exercising, it's these moments where I'm kind of not thinking about anything, anything specific. I think it opens up my creativity and often I'll just, you know, I'll be somewhere and an idea will just pop into my head of like, oh, it'd be funny if this, this character with this head doing this thing. 
Um, and usually it'll make me laugh. So like often I'll, sometimes I'll be walking somewhere and I'll just, people probably think I'm nuts cause I'll just start cracking up walking down the street. <laughs> <laughs> you know, next steps after that though, you, t- you talked about, uh, photo shoots and that the fact that you use models, um, for reference, I guess, how do those usually work? Do you usually have a pretty solid idea for what you want to achieve at the point where you go into a photo shoot or are you still figuring it out enough where ideas will also develop throughout the course of the, the, the shoot? Oh yeah, it changes a lot with the shoot. I mean, I think I have—I usually have an like an initial idea. So, for example, I did one this painting called Bad Kitty, where it's this friend of mine um, with, and she's she has this like full leather like leather jacket, leather you know black pants, and like this leather fanny pack, and she's looking at you with this very like cat like kind of pissed off staring at you look. Um, and so, and then she's got this T-shirt that says Bad Kitty. And so I, I had this initial idea for, oh, I want to do a painting called Bad Kitty. And it's going to be, you know, I knew the friend that I, that I wanted to pose for because she's got a lot of attitude. She's great. And she's modeled for a lot of my paintings. Um, and then I, and I got this T-shirt. So I knew I, it was like cat head T-shirt and this friend. And I told her the idea. And usually for, um, after that, I really want to see what they come up with. And so for her, I told her the idea and she's like, oh, I have this perfect outfit for it. And so she showed up in this like this costume. It was just perfect. And it's not something that I would have thought of. It was so much better than if I had told her what to wear. Um, and then and then I just that's what I always do. I just started posing her and I, I would give some ideas like, you know, maybe turn like this or move like this. Or sometimes it'll it'll the way they pose will be stiff. So I'll just say, OK, stand up, sit back down and, and see what they do, because I'm looking for something that's both kind of very like it's something very interesting, but also natural. And yeah. most of my mo- like most of my models aren't professional models. And so she moved around a lot. And then she just took this one like perfect pose where she's got her foot up, one foot up on the bench. She's, she's holding her arm up and, and the attitude was great. And so I, I think like if I were just to be really decide what I wanted and sketch it out, it would be much more boring than really having kind of the <laughs> interactive working with a model who brings their side to it. Yeah. I mean, it sort of, sort of makes it a collaboration of sorts. Um, I- I guess um, is is at least the idea far enough along where you already know what animal you're planning to use for it? Or is that also sometimes not quite captured yet until you see the person in motion? Now I do. I would say like the first third of the paintings I've done, I did in this series, I had no idea. So I would just have them model. And sometimes I might've had a prop, but I didn't really connect it to the animal. And then I would, I would look through the photos I took after a shoot and kind of just see what came to me. And then once I really started getting into like understanding what it was that I was trying to create with my work, now I pretty much always have an animal in mind. And so I'll usually get some kind of a prop that relates to that animal. Um, and then I'll, I'll pick a friend who kind of had like the physique and character of that animal. So like the Black Panther, that's my friend, Le Christopher, who's like, it's like big, really good looking guy. He used to be a, he was a football player in college. Um, so I thought like this guy could be Black Panther and that one was funny because his wife is this uh, Mexican woman in LA. She's a teacher. And when I told him, I, I told him we were at like a, a party and I, and they were together. So I told him that I wanted to paint him as black Panther and she cracked up because she has one of, one of her students calls him black Panther. Oh really? So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess you mentioned earlier that the, the models that you use typically aren't professional models. So do you, do you tr- usually try to work with people that you already know? And, and does it help you if you already know the person really well? Definitely. Almost all my models are friends and family. Once in a while, I'll, I'll see somebody on the street or meet somebody who like just seems perfect for something and I'll ask them to model. 
but you know, 90 something percent of my models are friends and family. And I really like that because I think that there's both like, it'll be somebody I have in my mind. So I'll be able to picture how they would look in the painting before I do it. And then also I think there's just a, like a familiarity with, with, you know, people I'm close to that. So when we're working together, they're not professional, but they feel comfortable and I feel comfortable and I kind of have some idea what they'll do. And, um, Mm. that helps a lot. When, when you have paintings that depict couples, whether it's, um, you know, romantic relationships or parent child relationships, do the models also tend to have those same relationships? Do you like that those relationships are the same as what you ultimately want them to be in the painting? Yeah, usually I do feel like I'm trying to capture the person. So most of the time, like all, almost all the couples I've done have been couples. I painted my cousin and his wife a, a lot of times. My friends, Max and Amanda, I painted a bunch of times. So usually, yeah, those are couples. But then once in a while, I'll have an idea for a painting where that doesn't work. So I had I had this idea for um, a girl with a bee head and a guy with a bear head. So it'd be like, you know, like because bears like honey. And I thought that was funny. <laughs> so um, so I asked one of my friends who's this, you know, little little uh, Indian girl to model for the bee. And then I wanted I, I wanted somebody huge for the bear. And so I actually I'd, I'd met one of my cousin's friends at a party a few years before who was this just like this giant Indian guy. I mean, he was, you know, like really tall, just like a big burly guy. And so I, I like, I messaged my cousin and said, you know, that friend of yours, I don't remember his name, but do you think, you know, he'd be interested. So he texted him and he was like, yeah, he was totally down for it. And so I got them together. They weren't a couple. They, they both, you know, were seeing other people and, um, but yeah, they, they just like were able to create this perfect kind of couple and really sold it in the painting. Yeah. I didn't know if that maybe at like, you wanted it to, to actually be more authentic, having the people have the same relationship so that you could get that body language down, you know? Yeah, I mean, it definitely makes it, I mean, that one, it, it took a little work because, um, you know, like I want, like I want his arm around her and it was like, you know, I think at the beginning they were not super comfortable, but I was able to get like a, in that one I was able to get a pose that worked. But um, yeah, definitely it's easier if it's an actual couple or parent and child where they just do, you know, they're really just doing what's natural. Right, right. And obviously, you know, while while you've been living in L.A., you, you don't really have a subway to take photos of. So, you know, do you use other photos for subway or just is it manifested from your memories of living in New York? No, I mean, the idea is definitely from New York, but I have a lot of references from when I'm in New York because I'm actually in New York now when we're recording this. But I, I come here frequently. And so um, I a bunch of times when I've been here, I'll go on the subway at like 2 a.m. when there's nobody on it. And then I just take a <laughs> bunch of pictures of the of the car so I could have references of what the seats look like. Um, and then the other thing that I ended up doing was I, I made a 3d model in uh, Google, in SketchUp, which is mostly it's, it's an architectural program, but I made a model so that I could kind of shift around and help me see what it would look like if people are sitting in different places. Oh, and wow. that one was actually funny because to, to, to make those models, you need to have measurements of the thing you're building. So this is, you know, two feet high or six inches deep or whatever. So I went on, I went on the subway one night with a tape measure at like 2am <laughs> and just measured like everything in the car, the, the seats, the width of the seats, the windows. And I, you know, I was made sure there was nobody on there cause it looked super sketchy. That's very scientific of you. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So that's a way that my science comes into play. Yeah. Um, and, and I guess, so once you have a solid idea for a piece and you have, you know, ample reference photos, um, to move forward with it, how do you go about developing the composition? 
do you do you do like ink drawings where you have more and more refined ink drawings do you do like thumbnail sketches digital compositions or do you just you know dive into the the painting itself yeah i do a whole bunch of i i kind of combine it all so i'll do some little sketches and then i i usually once i know what i'm doing i'll i'll rough out a, a like a photoshop uh, in photoshop i'll rough out like a digital composition to get an idea of what things will look like um and then once that's done, I'll, I'll pretty much always now I'll do like a little um, a little mini version of the painting, which is kind of it's not very detailed, but it helps me get kind of work out, kind of refine the composition a little bit further and nail down like colors and contrast and get a sense of what the overall painting will look like. Um, and then once I have that, I do a, I have like a full size drawing that I transfer to the canvas and then I go through I usually do I do an underpainting stage which kind of roughs everything in and acts as a base coat for the, the final painting. And then I work section by section really detailed to, to bring it to a real finish. So it is very technical. Like I have this whole method that's worked out. So at the point where you start actually painting on the final piece, is it pretty locked down at that point or, or does it have the potential to go in, in new directions that, that maybe you didn't expect? It's pretty locked. The overall is pretty locked down. I mean, the way that I work, it's, it's kind I can make big changes, but it's not easy. So often it'll take twice as long if I have to make a big change. And when I do, when it, when I find something that'll improve the composition, I do. Um, but I always pretty much find little details that I add later that brings a lot to the painting. Like, oh, if I put this sticker here or I write, have this like graffiti on the background, or maybe somebody scratched something into the back of the subway seat. Um, and those things are small, but they add a lot. Like I, I did one painting where it's this guy with a monkey head walking down the platform in the subway. Like he just got off the train and he's, and he's got a banana, he's eating a banana. And so I finished the painting and I, I, I think I was probably maybe two thirds in and I thought, oh, it'd be really funny if there was a, like a banana peel on the platform. Like, you know, he's like walking down, eating them, tossing them on the platform as he goes. And so when I did that one, I, like I had that idea while I was working on the painting, but I was also in this like big rush to finish everything for the, for the show, for the deadline. And so I was like, Oh, I don't know if I'll do it. It'd be funny. I don't know. And then I got to the end and I, I had like another day or something. I was like, Oh, that, that's just too good. I have to add that. <laughs> and it is something that people have pointed out when they see the painting. So I think it like, it was a small yeah. thing, but it really adds a lot. Well, and, and some of them will have interesting reflections in the glass. And I know I've, I've spotted Ken actually as a reflected right. person in, in one of the paintings. <laughs> and I kind of imagine yeah. that those are probably things that you could potentially add in the, in the moment, you know? Yeah. Those kinds of things. Sometimes I'll add the one with Ken was funny because that painting I did during the pandemic. So I had all the, I, I had the, like all my, most of the references for the painting, but in that one, it's a guy with a, with a, he's a sloth, like a, with a sloth head. And we had this inside joke where Ken loves sloths. So I thought it was, so I was like, oh, I got to put Ken in the background, but it was, you know, it was like the pandemic. So I couldn't have him model. So I ended up doing this photo shoot like over FaceTime where, where uh, Alicia, his girlfriend was like, she was taking the photo and I was like looking at the camera kind of directing through the photo. And then she took the, these, some photos and sent it to me. Amazing. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, so your medium, medium of choice is oil paint. Um, that's pretty much what you, you use exclusively. I guess, what is it about? Um, oil that you like opposed to, you know, acrylic or gouache or other types of paints? Yeah, I mean, I've done sketches in gouache and, and uh, acrylic sometimes. And it's, it's, you know, sometimes that can be good for fast little things you're working out or watercolor because you don't need any setup. But I love oil paint just because it has so much flexibility and you can really get just like a depth of color and detail and blending that you 
that's just really hard to get with any other medium. Um, and I feel like with oil, with oil, it's it was it's a difficult medium to learn. Like in the beginning, when I first I remember going to see these really refined oil paintings at museums, and then I got some oil paints and tried on my own. I was like, this is what they're doing it with. Like I felt like I was drawing with soup. Um, <laughs> But then once you really get get familiar with it, it's just like I feel like you just have so much control over it. And I, it's very direct, like that really direct control. And I love that. Are there mediums that you'd like to explore or experiment with in the future that you've never had an opportunity to? Yeah, it's funny. I was talking to a friend about that, I think, because like what really sparked my interest in being an artist in the beginning was these classical European paintings. And I loved looking at marble sculptures when I was in Italy. I mean, they were everywhere in museums, but on the outsides of buildings and in middle of squares. So I, I think it would be really fun to do a marble full, like marble sculpture of one of my characters. I have no idea. I think that would be really difficult to do. I'd have to learn how to carve marble, but that's something that I think would be great if I could do it. Well, and it goes back to what you were originally interested in art anyway, right? Your, your whole childhood, your art making was more three-dimensional. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I still like, I was actually at my, my friend Natasha's place the other day, who's, she's a art painter I studied with when I was in Italy. Um, and her kids are now really artistic. So we were sitting around using Sculpey to make little animal figurines. And that was really fun. I mean, it was, it was great. Cause like really brought me back to, you know, what got me interested at the beginning, which was exactly that doing those kinds of projects with my parents. Oh, that's awesome. Um, so changing gears a bit, and before we dive into your your new show, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the experience that you had working with Moby on the cover art for his, his 2018 album, which I think was his 15th studio album called Everything Was Beautiful and Nothing Hurt. I guess, so how did that project come to you? Like, how did you, um, you know, get connected with, um, you know, Moby or his people? And, and how did that opportunity come to you? Yeah, that was really random. It was the the woman who was... I believe she was his assistant at the time and and she knew my she knew my work from going to ThinkSpace. And so I guess she'd shown it to him and she sent me an email one day saying I showed your work to Moby, he really liked it and he's wondering if he could get if he could commission a painting. And I, I mean I when I was in college I loved that was when Play came out. I remember like me and my roommate would just like drive around playing that album for hours and hours. I loved that album. Yeah. Um, and so I, I you know I was like I kind of flipped out when I got that email. So I was like absolutely. Um, and so I emailed her back and then I guess he was on the chain. So he responded to me and said, my mother was an oil painter and I love painting. And so it was a a really cool connection because it was, I mean, there's lots of, you know, if Taylor Swift asked me to do a painting for her, that would be like amazing, but I'm not, you know, she's not somebody whose music had a huge amount of influence on me, but you know, that album really did. So it was this great connection between he liked my painting and I you know loved his music. And so, um, the painting that he he really there was this one painting that was a father and son with bullheads that he really liked and but that one actually was a was a painting i did for my grandmother and so i i said you know that one is not available but i can do something else for you um and so i i ended up doing this painting it wasn't as a it wasn't for an album cover it was just for a to you know for him and then oh, brought wow. it over to his yeah it was and so i brought it over to his house when it was done it was you know that was the first time i actually met him it was you know, really nice, really friendly. And then I think it was a, it was a couple days later, I was, I was actually driving. And so I had my phone up on my um, dashboard, on my dashboard, like in a holder for GPS. And then like this email pops up from Moby. So I'm like, so at like a stop sign, I like click on that or stop, like click on that. And it like pops up and it was, and he, and he said, you know, this is like a, you know, I was wondering like if I could use this painting on an album cover. And so I like, I, you know, I was like a, I started screaming in my car basically because I thought it was so, <laughs> so cool. 
um, I was like, yeah, you know, absolutely. That's amazing. So it was originally just a piece for Moby and then he ultimately, I mean, I guess because the title was written on the book, was that after the fact? No, actually, that was the one thing they changed. So the the title, it was that book Ferdinand, which is was one of my childhood favorite books that he also really loved, which is about this, it's like the biggest, toughest bull that um, in Spain, but he doesn't want to be in the bullfight. He just wants to lie in the in the, the grass and smell the flowers. And and so in the end, they let it, they, you know, they take him to bullfight, but he won't fight. Um, and, you know, Mo, Moby is a, you know, vegan and that, you know, animal issues are of his, his real passion. Right, and so I think right. that's why that really connected with him. Um, and so then for the album, they photoshopped out the original title on the book and replaced it with the title of the album. Okay, nice. Yeah. Um, it, the fact that it had the title in the book uh, on the book made me think that maybe it was something you made specifically for the album. I guess, do you like working with, did you like that experience? Would you like to work with bands? I mean, I guess when you were creating it, you were really thinking of it as an album cover um, that came later. But is that something you think you'd want to do more of? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, as an artist, you're very, um, a lot of times you're very isolated because you're in your studio alone. And so I think, yeah, the the ability to connect to other creatives is something that's, um, yeah, that that's very fulfilling. Um, and I, I think, uh, yeah, so I think, yes, definitely. Like if somebody else was interested and I think that again, like what made that one so meaningful to me was it was somebody whose work also meant a lot to me. And, and I think that's something that's great as an artist, whether it's a, you know, a musician or another painter, when you can connect through your work, like I have some painters, some really close painter friends where, you know, they're not some, just my best friends, but they're also like literally like definitely some of my favorite living painters like being able to, where, you know, we've done trades or things like that. Being able to connect over your art is something as an artist really means so much because it's so personal. Yeah, for sure. I mean, who would be your like dream musician uh, to do another piece for? My dream musician. That's hard. I'm bad. I'm bad at whatever anybody <laughs> puts me on the spot. <laughs> I'm going to have to think about that one. <laughs> All right. Yeah. You get back to me on that. Um, so let's talk about your new show. And I know that it opens at ThinkSpace on January 21st, which is the Saturday after this show should debut. Um, so, you know, what can you tell me about this new body of work? Yeah, this body of work is, I've been working on it for a while. Um, and this time I just, like, I usually do a bunch of different sizes of paintings. Um, and uh, this time, when I got interested in painting, the the paintings that I really fell in love with were these paintings where the figures are life-size because they felt like when you see these paintings, it's like the person's actually there. And so this time I decided to do, I did half the paintings. I did smaller paintings like I normally do, but then I did, usually I do maybe like one bigger painting. And so this time I did, I did four bigger paintings and that was really fun for me to, it, to really feel like I was, um, really work, you know, really working on the stuff that got me into painting in the first place. And that really kept the show really exciting to do to do those paintings. Um, and they're all this time they're all it's going to be nine new paintings. So eight of them are all set on the subway. And then one of them is a painting I've actually been working on. I think I started this five years ago. Which I rarely spend that long in a painting, but it's this painting of this guy with a wolf head on the London tube. So it's the one that's out of out of New York. And it's a it's a play. It's called American Werewolf in London. So it's a play on the classic uh, cult film. This guy, he's reading this newspaper and I created, it was fun because this time, like I've gotten more into this, but I created this whole newspaper. So I got a newspaper from London and then I scanned it and then I like moved everything around and like added my own headlines and stuff. 
so that when he's reading this newspaper and it says it says it says werewolf in London believed to be American and that it's like a picture of the the werewolf and and he's just kind of like calmly sitting reading this newspaper. Nice. What's the the title of the show? Do you already have a, sh- a show title? Yeah, this one's called Riders. Okay, nice. I, I guess other than um, them all being based in the subway, is there any other kind of overarching theme that you were aiming for with this body of work? Um, so in terms of theme, I, I usually don't think that much in terms of theme. I usually, because it's more like I usually think kind of like try to create something that represents where I am at the time. And so it's more what are the paintings that are, what are the ideas that are coming to me? And usually they they hold together because it's something that I've thought of in a certain time. But there are certain things that I'm that I had a lot of fun with that I was pushing a little more than the other paintings. So I always do the reflections in the windows um, and uh, or, you know, characters like if they're in this in if they're in the subway station, I'll have somebody standing on the platform. And it used to be that it was just somebody to, you know, to give to give the sense that they're in the real world. But it was often like, I mean, sometimes it was friends, but often it was just some some random person I would stick in there more for a design element. And then this time I started putting, making it so that the people in the reflections or on the platform are actually um, related to the character, related to the animal. So I have one painting that's called Polly Wanna Cracker, which is this girl and she has a box of Ritz crackers and a parrot head. And so she's very messily like eating these crackers and there's like crumbs all over. And then... <laughs> And then on the platform, you see, you see like a, you see a pirate from Pirates of the Caribbean standing out there, just kind of looking off. <laughs> <laughs> Is there any piece in the show that, that challenged you maybe more than, than some of the others? That's funny because whenever I start a painting, I always, I always, I never think about what it's going to be technically. And I always have the sense of like afterwards, like, oh, I should try maybe not to make it too difficult sometimes. And then once I come up with an idea, I'm like, no, that, that's great. I'll paint that. And so I had, it was really the one on the, on the, on the London tube, there are just so many textures in that painting because it's the seats are this pattern fabric as opposed to the, you know, single color plastic that's on the New York City subway seats. So things like that, where there were just this lit this pattern of all these colors and like the pattern going like wrapping around the seat and and it's each section of the pattern has a different color. So I was I think like painting those seats took me like four or five days just to do the seats. Oh, and so wow. I think probably like day four, I was like, why did I decide to do it on this seat? <laughs> but in the end, like I love it, like the, the texture really helps the painting. So it was totally worth it once I'm done. And the fact that you just made an entirely new newspaper for it. I mean, that, that, that in and of itself is a challenge. Yeah. You know, that's something, that's one of those things that really goes back to stuff I was interested in much earlier that I, I always loved like playing with those kinds of things. Like I remember when I was in Paris, um, the the girl I was with at the time, like she loved reading Cosmo. And so for her, I was for her, I think it was for Christmas one year, I made like a fake Cosmo cover with a photo I'd taken of her. And then I made all these like, you know, like kind of funny headline, like, you know, titles of the different stories that all related to her and then framed it and gave it to her. So I always like, I always really liked that kind of visual humor or taking things from pop culture and then playing around with it and making my version of it. Awesome. Very cool. um, I'm assuming you're going to be back in time for the show to attend in person. I am. Yeah. I'm yeah. I'm in New York for a couple, two and a half weeks and then I'll be back to, I have one more painting that is half done. So I'm going to do a big push when I get back to get that done by the deadline. Anything else you have coming up that you'd want to put on people's radar events, print releases, stuff like that. 
Um, I'm going to be having some more print releases, but I'm still working that out at the moment. So if people are interested in that, you know, they can follow me on Instagram or, uh, you know, DM me their email address to be on my email list. That's at Grabelski on Instagram. Um, and then I have another show that's going to be with Dorothy Circus, which is the gallery that I've shown with in London. That's going to be in, um, I believe it's April uh, 2024. So that that's the the next one that I have lined up after this. Excellent. Is there going to be a show print for the show in January? Yeah, I'm still working that one out with ThinkSpace, but there will be a print with that. Okay, awesome. So last question, and this is something that I like to ask everybody. Uh, who is one artist that you'd like to see me have on the show? Artist on the show? Well, I, I, w- I was going to say Scott Lisfield because he's one of my best friends and he lives right around the corner from me, but he already has been on your show. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. And Ken Flewellen has also already been on your show. Um, did, didn't you trade a piece with Scott too? I remember seeing that in your Instagram where you, you, tra- I did. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. That, that was fun because when we did that, I had this one piece that had Dunkin' Donuts in it and he's from Boston, which is the home of Dunkin' Donuts. So he right. really liked that. <laughs> and so we talked about doing a trade and then I went over to his apartment one day and just was like, here's the painting. And he's like, oh, so now I have to do it. I was like, yeah, now you have to, I'm just giving it to you now. Uh, and then like for, for paintings, like I feel like whenever anybody, my experience is if somebody commissions something, it's usually that I have total freedom, but kind of the more somebody says, I feel like it makes the painting worse. And like the more that the artist can do what they want. Um, and so for the trade, like I, he was asking me if there's anything I wanted in it and I, I didn't really want to tell him. So I sent him like, I, I went through his website and if you know, Scott's work, he paints like so many paintings. He's amazing. He's so fast and efficient. And so I picked out like 30 of my favorite paintings and 30. And sent it to him. <laughs> yeah. 30. It was like, Oh great. So basically like all of my stuff. I was like, yeah, <laughs> right. Right. And he did this like great painting for me. That was, it was basically like this view of the, the astronaut in my neighborhood, um, with a, with a hawk because there's like, I loved animals and the hawks over Elysian park. And then you can see the moon. And I loved when he does like astronomy stuff like moon or space. So, um, yeah, so that was a really fun trade. Very cool. So back to the question, uh, who other than people that I've already had on <laughs> back to the question, I, one of my favorite artists in the world is uh key Sung Ko, who also, also shows at think space. He's a Korean guy based in Toronto. Um, and he does these, just these really, these, they're paintings of animals, which really speaks to me, but they're just really interesting and whimsical and kind of dark. Um, and his stuff is just great. And the other artist that I absolutely love um, is Jolene Lai. And she she's at ThinkSpace. She used to be in LA. Now she's moved back, back to Providence. But sh- her stuff is these very kind of surrealist, very imaginative paintings. They'll be like dolls or um, like things like an upside down. Like she'll, she'll be have like a character in a house and it's flooding and there'll be like a giant squid. Just this really strange and interesting. Um, yeah. She, yeah, she's another one that I love. Awesome. Very cool. I love both of their work. So uh, yeah, I appreciate it. Great, great recommendations. Uh, Matthew, thank you so much for doing the show, man. This has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. Oh, for sure. It's great to be on. I'm a big fan of the other interviews you've done. So it's fun to be on the other side. So that's it for this episode of Art Affairs. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Matthew. I think it's so interesting to, you know, think about the animal heads on Matthew's characters as being the sort of manifestation of their inner thoughts and feelings. They're subconscious on full display. I feel like there's something Freudian or just psychologically interesting about that. Um, But 
that connection to ancient mythology is really interesting too, and, and the almost totemic quality of the subjects. I'm really eager to check out his new show, opening at ThinkSpace on January 21st, the Saturday after this episode should debut. His show, Writers, will feature nine new works from Matthew, including four rather large ones, all riding the subway, with one actually based out of London. Reach out to ThinkSpace for a look at all the works before the opening, but if you're in the area, definitely run by the gallery to check out the show up close. And then keep an eye out for his show next year at Dorothy Circus Gallery in London. And of course, you can follow his Instagram to stay up to date with all the latest. So thanks again to Matthew for joining me today, and thank you for checking out the show. I'm truly grateful for your support. And just a reminder, one big way you could help out if you're really enjoying the show would be to check out the show's Patreon. You can find all the details on patreon.com slash artifairs. And as always, you can contact me through my website at artifairspodcast.com or on Instagram at artifairspodcast. So until next time, be good to yourself and be good to each other. Mm-hmm.